You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. So we're teaching through the Lord's Prayer. Today I want to speak about the theme of our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father. Um, Last week we looked at the theme, How Not to Pray. And Jesus, before telling us how to pray, we notice, tells us how not to pray. And that's what we saw last week, that God calls us not to pray uh, to impress people. God calls us not to pray to impress God. God calls us to turn to a secret place and pray to him where our Father hears in secret and will reward us. So, after looking at what not to pray for the next, including today, seven weeks, we will look at uh, how to pray. And we want to read from the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verse 9. We're just covering verse 9 today. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. I'm going to stop there. You never stop there. You've never heard the Lord's Prayer stopped there. But to emphasize that we're going to go piece by piece, I'm going to stop there today and and look at our Father in heaven. Jesus says, pray then like this. Now, notice he doesn't tell us what to pray in Matthew 6. He tells us how to pray. He says, pray like this. He tells us how to pray. To pray. Oftentimes we think of the Lord's Prayer as a prayer to memorize, which is appropriate. We think of it as a prayer to recite, that is, in a worship gathering or in some other context, to recite it as a prayer. But he doesn't actually tell us, pray these words in this passage. He says, pray like this. It's not wrong to recite the prayer in a worship gathering or privately, to just pr- uh, recite it as is. But it's not just a prayer to be sort of parroted or prayed. That's not the main purpose of giving us this. If so, our daily prayer would take about 15 seconds. Uh, The prayer is rather an outline. What he's doing here is he's giving big picture categories of what we are to address when we pray. He's giving us topics. He's giving us an outline for prayer, and it follows a very clear pattern. First of all, he gives us a preface The preface is, how should we address God? And the preface is, our Father in heaven. So this is how we are to address God. That's what we'll talk about today. And then he gives six petitions or six requests. The first three requests are toward God. So it's a beautiful outline. The first three requests have to do with requests that we make of our, for us, and they are Godward in their orientation. So hallowed be your name. That's the first request. Your kingdom come. That's the second request. Your will be done. That's the third request. So the first three requests uh, are your name, your kingdom, and your will. Then the next three requests are man word or human word, we could say. They're about what uh, we pray for ourselves. 
And so they are, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, and then lead us not into temptation or deliver us from, and deliver us from evil, putting those two together. So the three petitions for us are for, we could say, our provision, daily bread, our pardon, forgive us our sins, and our protection, don't lead us into temptation. So the six petitions, three God word, three uh, human word, three vertical, three horizontal, they are his name, his kingdom, uh, and his will. His name, his kingdom, his will, and our provision, pardon, and protection. Those are six words that reflect the six requests of the passage. So we're going to look at each one of those because each one of those can be developed out uh, as a way of praying. And where I can, uh, I'm going to try to root this uh, in the context of this passage itself. So what I'm not going to do is each week give a systematic theology, a biblical overview of each of these words. Uh, I don't think that's the best way to study it. Sometimes we will definitely look outside of the text itself because we only get three words. Your kingdom come. We get three words. So we're probably going to have to go outside of the immediate text. But I'm going to try to stay in the context where possible because this prayer was delivered in a context and not as like a general categories of theology. So we'll do the best we can with that. Um, But before we begin, our Father in heaven, before we see what Jesus tells us to call God or how to relate to God, I want to notice something, and that's the word our. The prayer is corporate. This prayer is corporate. The entire prayer is offered in the plural. Did you notice that? It's not my Father, my daily bread, my forgiveness, but it is ours, our daily bread, our forgiveness. Now, that may be surprising to you. You may have never thought about that aspect of prayer. It may surprise you that the model prayer, this is often called the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer is to be prayed together, at least with God's people in view. And that's because this matches with the whole theme of the Bible, that faith in Christ is about us, not about me. It is about us and not me. So the most private of devotions, prayer, is to be entered into with a corporate, with a plural, with an us in mind. That's an adjustment for many of us right out the chute. So It's not only adjustment that half the prayer is about God before we get to our personal request. By the way, that is a surprise as well. But it's also a surprise that it's a corporate prayer that we are to have others in view. Now, the Bible certainly advocates praying individually. Jesus' life is filled with private prayer. Seems like they're always going out to find Jesus alone praying, even on the eve of his death. That is the case. He's ultimately praying alone because the others couldn't stay awake. So Jesus is always praying privately or regularly praying privately in the Bible. So the Bible's not against individual prayer. But the point is that when we pray, we are always connected to God's people. So that even when I'm bringing, crying out for my own needs and my own requests, I do so aware of the needs of 
others. That even private prayer is a community event of sorts. Because I'm to remember you. I'm to see myself joined to you. In the New Testament, you never see a believer who's decoupled, who's separated, who's distanced, who's not connected to the church, the people of God. And this shows up in our private prayers. So, after recognizing our, that it's a plural prayer, we see that Jesus defines how we're to approach God. That's the intro or the preface. He tells us how we are to approach God. He's telling us what we should think of God. How should we think about God when we enter into prayer? A.W. Tozer famously said this. I think it's so true. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want to take some um, freedom here and adapt his saying, because I think when we see that Jesus starts with our Father in heaven, we could say this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about our prayers. I believe that's true. How you conceive of God, how you think of God, how you imagine God when you pray is the most important thing about your prayer because how you think of God will determine how you pray. It will determine why you pray. Friends, it will determine if you pray. Your vision of God will determine how you pray pray. If God's just there to solely provide for your needs, then you skip the preface, you skip the first three requests, and you get right down to my daily bread. If, on the other hand, God is distant and unfamiliar and doesn't really care about you, as a matter of fact, kind of a little bit mad at you, then maybe you stay in the front part trying to somehow Uh, draw near to him in person. So how we think about God is so important. And he gives us two, two truths or two concepts about God. He's our father in heaven. And I want to talk about both of those. I want to talk about what it means that he's in heaven. And I want to talk about what it means that he's our father. The fact that he says that he is in heaven means that God is other. God is other. The fact that he's our father means that God is near. So I want to look at these two ideas. God is other, God is near. And I'm going to start with God in heaven. Because if we don't understand sort of the otherness of God, number one, God is other. If we don't get that, if we don't get how God is different than us, then we will never appreciate what it is to have that God as our father. So we really need to understand that first. God is other, and that's a positive term. Sometimes other to to sort of other someone is used in a negative term in these days, especially with what's going on in our culture. But here it's a positive term that God is other. Um, We want to be in awe of him. Now this idea of God in heaven, that would have been familiar to Jesus' hearers. They're on board with this. This is all over the Old Testament. Consider Psalm 103. 
19. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. The idea that God is in heaven or that God is in the heavens is not so much a statement about God's location. It's a statement about God's reign. Whenever we read of heaven in the Bible, we often read of a throne, and a throne communicates God's reign. It communicates God's majesty. It communicates God's sovereignty. So the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. When, when he says he is our God in heaven, our Father in heaven, the first hearers who knew their Old Testament would have thought throne, rule, majesty, control. God rules. Uh, Psalm 115 says something very similar. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So he's other than us. He is sovereign. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing what God wants to do. He rules. He does what pleases him. God in heavens, God in the heavens mean the God who is sovereign, who controls all things. Or look at Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. There it is. Your father in heaven, the one on the throne. And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Do you see what he's saying here? My, my throne is heaven. Earth is like what you, what you imagine as this grand, great planet. And certainly it is. But what you imagine as awe-inspiring, the whole world, the planet earth, it's like a place for me to rest my feet upon. What's he saying? God is completely different from us. His throne points to the fact that there is an infinite gap between God and man. He is utterly unlike us. Does this grip you that he is holy? He is powerful. He knows all things. He controls all things. He's not like, kind of like us, but like a really, really good human. He's kind of like like us on our best day on steroids. No, he's nothing like you. He, is ho- he has always existed. He controls everything. And when we look at these kind of attributes that point to the otherness of God, God in heaven, theologians call that God's transcendence. God is transcendent. What does that mean? It means that he is above us in every way. In the Bible, when people encounter God, God Almighty, their, their reactions are, well, they're uniform. I mean, there's only a few instances of this. But think about Isaiah 6. When Isaiah sees God in the temple, he's not saying, there's God Almighty, high five. I guess we don't do that. Elbow, whatever. He's, he's not saying that to God. He sees God in the temple, and his response is, woe is me. Here is a prophet of God prophesying judgment upon himself. Woe is, not the Babylonians, woe is me, for, for I am ruined, he says. One translation says, I am undone. It means to come apart at the seams. I saw God and I came apart at the seams because I am a sinful man in view of his holiness. Or think about A New Testament example in Revelation 1, when Jesus 
appears in his glory to John in, in uh, Revelation 1. It says, John says, his eyes are like blazing fire. He spoke, and his voice was the sound of many rivers. It, it's just a description, an analogy. His voice was so overwhelming that the only thing I can think of is that it thundered like the sound of many rivers. And John says, when I saw him, I fell as though dead. This is God in heaven. Other, he's perfect, blazing holiness, such that if you saw his majestic glory, you would not live. That's God in heaven. And as we come in prayer, we stand before the one whose glory is breathtaking, and we need to pause and consider that to fully appreciate this passage. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes said, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Ecclesiastes 5. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So don't come in here sort of flippantly, but reverently the writer of Ecclesiastes says. So, the Jewish listeners that hear Jesus say, address God as the one in heaven, they get it. They have some sense of what this means because they see it in the Old Testament. So, they are not shocked that he says, revere the God of heaven. But they are rocked, you can be sure, by the scandalous notion that the eternal, omnipotent, creator, sovereign ruler of the universe invites us to call him Father. That is a stunner. They have no category to prepare for that. For God is not only other, though he surely is, he is also near, point two. God is near. Yes, his rule is beyond our comprehension. Yes, his being is beyond our description. Yet we have relational access to him. Not just relational access, but relational access with familiarity. He uses the term father, Elsewhere in the New Testament, and even Jesus in the Gospels, and elsewhere in the New Testament, he, he is referred to as Abba, Father. Abba was a child's or, or an adult's. It could be an adult's re reference to their dad as well. It probably translates best into English as dad. It's a familiar term. So not only is he in heaven, holy, eternal, righteous, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Not only is he holy, holy, holy. I was undone when I saw him. He's also our dad that we address him in this term. There's a personal affection that we bring to God. Praying to God, addressing God in prayer as father, that is unknown to his hearers because that's unknown in the Old Testament. The Bible does call God Father in the Old Testament. I think it's like 17 times or something like that. But in every instance, he is viewed as like the, the ruler or the leader or ruler or overseer of the nation of Israel. He's called the Father of Israel, for instance. But he is never addressed in prayer as Father. 
in the Old Testament. Jesus is bringing something revolutionary. Now, we're familiar with this, but it's revolutionary when Jesus prays this way. Jesus calls God Father more than 60 times in the Gospels. And when Jesus prays, he always calls God Father except in one prayer in the Gospels. Every time but one, he is pictured as communicating that God is his Father. Now, part of that is to communicate that he is the Son of God. But when we're united to him, we're invited to pray the same way. Because we are adopted into the family and we are sons of God, daughters of God as well. And so that's why he tells us to pray, our Father. Jesus' Father, to be sure, but our Father because we are in Christ. This is, this is astounding truth, that that God whom Isaiah and John could not even stand before has called us to call him Father because of Christ who reconciles us to him. What are we to think of when we hear this term father? Now, there's a lot of things we could think of, but I want to pay attention to a few that are in, the, in this chapter. First of all, we, it is a statement of his nearness. I know point two is God is near, and point two A is his nearness, and you're not supposed to do that in an outline, but I just can't, I can't say it any other way. His nearness. If in heaven represents God beyond us, his fatherhood represents his availability, his accessibility. And that's the point Jesus makes in verse 6. We looked at this last week, verse 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Jesus is saying, go to a place that doesn't have to be a room. But go to a place where you are mentally, at least mentally alone, and communicate privately there to your father. And what does he say about him? He's present. He is near. He is listening. I mean, in a sense, dare we say he is waiting. Not waiting like he's needy in that not that sense, but God waits to hear from his people. God is leaning in. God is posturing himself toward us because of Christ. Jesus says, your father is near, so shut the door and speak to him personally. Jesus wants us to understand prayer to the father in heaven as prayer to the God to whom, with whom we are close, with whom we have in a relationship, who is waiting there for us to communicate. Do you think of prayer in this way? Do you think of prayer as God is present now with me? And as I speak, he sees, he hears, and he rewards. Jesus' word, not mine. He rewards. Do you think of God this way? Do you think of God with the warm affection of a father who is present? who is near, who is listening, and who answers. So when he calls him father, the text makes clear that he's present. He's near, verse 6. Number two, he cares. A father cares. Look at verse 8. 
Do not be like them, speaking of the pagans or the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus was saying in this passage, don't just give a bunch of phrases thinking you can manipulate God by using a lot of phrases or the right phrase or something like this, or that if you pray enough that God is forced to answer, that's not prayer. We come to a God who we're confident he cares because he knows our needs before we show up. The fact that he knows our needs implies that he cares for our needs. What does it mean that he's a father? Yes, he's near. Yes, he's present. But he also cares. He cares. He knows what our needs are. Psalm 103 makes this beautiful comparison of God to a father. Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. The comparison is making the point that God is a compassionate father who knows our frame. What does that mean? He knows what we're made of. He knows our limitations He knows our weaknesses, and he responds to those as people who fear him. Those who fear him, he responds to us with compassion, with compassion, with empathy. To his children, God is not, Psalm 103 is saying, he's not a driving taskmaster. He's not an angry judge. He's a compassionate dad. And in light of the holiness of God, that is stunning that we get both of these pictures of God in the Bible. He provides his care to us. He knows our frame. You know, God not only knows our frame, and so he cares for us, but the Bible says that God, the person of God, actually takes our frame in the person of Jesus Christ And he comes and experiences the suffering of our broken world and suffers not only with us, but as a substitute, suffers for us. Takes the judgment that is due us in our place. Compassion means to suffer with. So what does it mean? That's literally what it means, suffer with. So what does it mean that God is compassionate? It means that Jesus suffers in our place dies in our place, that he is familiar. He is a man of sorrows, familiar with our grief. And you know, some of you come today with profound burdens in your life. And I want you to know that the fact that God is our father is a statement that he sees. He sees, he knows, he cares. And he demonstrated that care by sending his son, Jesus himself, coming Talk about compassion, the innocent suffering in place of the guilty on the cross bearing our sins. It's the ultimate act of compassion. And with that in view, he invites us to come to him as father. So he is near. Father means he's near. Father means he cares. And lastly, I would say from this context, father means he provides. It's provision. It's provision. God provides You know, after addressing God as Father, Jesus says we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So God is the Father, so ask him to meet your needs. 
The, the connection's obvious. A good father provides for his children. Jesus highlights that point later in this chapter. In this chapter later, uh, Jesus says in verse 26 that when it comes to dealing with our fears, that he wants us to understand the image of God as Father to secure us so that we're not anxious. So in verse 26, verse 26 of this same chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, look, he's, he's done with the prayer at this point. And he says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's the creator and sustainer of the birds, but he's your Father. And if he provides for birds, are you not more uh, valuable than they are, is what he says next. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father, there it is again, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So he's saying, God knows, God cares. Just every time you see a bird who's not starving, but is alive, know that God feeds the birds. He will care for you. It's a sign of provision. He's the perfect father. He's near. He's caring. He's providing. And we could add other things from the Bible, wise, loving, forgiving, all-knowing, merciful, on and on. But the point is that knowing God as your heavenly father is an incentive to prayer. It's a great incentive of prayer that the God who controls all is your Father near to you. Now, for some of us watching or some of us in the room, thinking of God as Father is not an incentive to prayer, but actually for some of us it may be a barrier to prayer. I want to acknowledge that. You know, some of us perhaps had a father who was absent, who was angry, who was distant, maybe even abusive. And so when we hear the term that God is Father, it's, it's hard to relate. But I want to communicate it to you that God is completely different than any earthly father. I'm so sorry for what you may have experienced uh, or what you maybe even experience to this day with a distant father. I'm sorry for what you have experienced, um, but I want to give you hope that the Bible teaches that God is a perfect father. And we don't judge the perfect father by looking through the imperfections of an earthly father. We do just the opposite. We look at a perfect father and then we evaluate a human father in light of the perfect father. And we find that all fathers fall short. That all fathers certainly may not be cruel, angry, and abusive, but all fathers are a poor reflection of the Heavenly Father. The most godly father imaginable is not near the perfection of God the Father. And so, is it a blessing to have a good dad, a Christian dad? For sure, it's a blessing. For sure, it's a gift. But for those who have not experienced that, I want you to know that God will never penalize you 
or limit your experience of him because of your earthly father's failures. You are not penalized. You are not at a disadvantage because of grace. Grace means that Jesus comes to redeem what we've done and what's been done to us. Grace means that Jesus comes to redeem and make all things new. It is possible for the God of grace to give you a robust vision, an amazing experience, a warm, intimate, close relationship with God as Father, even if you've never had that in in a human relationship. Because he's the perfect Father, and he's the God of grace. I'm going to encourage you to ask God to help give you a biblical understanding, and not only an intellectual understanding, but an experience in your soul, even an emotional experience of what it means for, to know the heavenly Father who is perfect and never fails us. And over time, as we draw near to God, and it may take time, But over time, as we draw near to God and trust him, I believe that his will and that his grace is for you to then be able to more and more experience and know when you hear God the Father, think available, think near, think compassionate, think provider, think warm embrace from God the Father. If that is a burden you carry and a a wound, a grief, that you live with, I'd recommend you to talk to someone about that, to open up and ask someone who's wise and could, Christian could give you wise biblical counsel or, or just could be a listening ear to pray for you, pray for you on that. There's one other thing about a father that I want to say about to recognize the care and the provision and the nearness of a father. Two of our, we have four kids, they're all grown, but two of them growing up, uh, especially in their teen years, had uh, experienced a chronic disease that they still have. And uh, for one of our kids, it was really, really a great deal of suffering. And maybe you've experienced that, a suffering child. Maybe it's not something like a chronic disease or something. You know, some of you have had far more uh, children with far harder times than we have uh, and suffered physically more than ours. But, but maybe it's something, it's just the experience of a, a little one who's crying with an ear infection or a fever or something, can't sleep. And just you, you, you can't do anything to fix their pain and to solve their problem. You know, and there's been times when I would see my kids suffering and I would think, you know, I, I, I wish I could just take their place. I wish we could swap it. And, you know, that's not because I'm godly. That's not even because I'm a Christian. People that aren't, dads that aren't Christians feel that. You don't have to be a Christian to feel that. I believe all fathers um, have a moment where they feel, I wish I could just trade places and experience that in place of my child. Where do you think that comes from? Where do you think that impulse originates from in fallen sinful hearts? It's the image of God on our souls because that's exactly God's heart. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he remained at a distance. No, that he gave his only son 
that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. God looks at us and sends his son, makes the ultimate sacrifice, sends his son to take our place. He didn't just look at our suffering and look at the judgment that was due us for our sin and say, I wish I could do something. He rather made the ultimate sacrifice and said, I will send my son to lay down his life, Jesus Christ, for your sins, that he would take what we deserve on the cross, that he would die in our place to remind us of the indescribable love of God. That is the compassion of God, which doesn't just feel with us, but acts at the greatest cost imaginable. He does send his son to take our place to die in our place, to experience our earthly struggles, sufferings as we experience, but to take divine judgment upon himself on the cross in our place and to rise on the third day to declare the defeat of sin and the way to eternal life. God has shown us ultimate love and we can trust him. Is he holy? Is he other? Yes. And so we come with awe and respect and a healthy fear of the Lord. Is he father? Yes. And so we're welcomed into the embrace of the holy God that does not treat us as the judge of our sins as Christians because he's judged his own son, the God who welcomes us in love. I I got a very brief, very brief closing here point to you. And that's how do we apply this? Before we get into the prayer I think to rush over this point will skew the way we understand the prayer and the way we pray the prayer. So I would say let's camp a bit on the idea of Heavenly Father. This week as you pray, think about in your mind what it means that he's the God in heaven, other, above us. And think what it means that that God has welcomed us through Christ as a father who cares, is near, and provides. Think about those two things together. And what that means. You might even read a psalm for your devotions. And as you read a psalm, note, where does it communicate the power, the distance, the otherness of God? And where does it communicate the nearness, the, the, the sort of God who is near touching us? How is that balance played out in Scripture from the God who is transcendent to the God who has come near us, who is imminent? Because we need both of those to be healthy disciples of Christ. He tells us that before we even pray, and we need a healthy thought. I I believe that as we think rightly about God, it will be an incentive to prayer. J.I. Packer says, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that it prompts. Drab thoughts of God make prayer dull. Many of us have dull prayer lives because we have drab thoughts of God. We don't have lofty thoughts of God, and we're not amazed by his nearness at the same time. It is thinking this through. So you might journal that way this week some. And then I also want to let you know for the next month or so, we'll have a, uh, a tool for you that you can use as well. It's kind of a walk through the Lord's Prayer. It's a very simple very simple uh, prayer journal that Caleb's put together. So you may have received an email this morning if you're uh, part of the church with a digital copy of that 
prayer guide. Uh, it'll also be on our website attached to this message. Uh, you'll be able uh, to go there uh, sometime and get a, the prayer guide itself. But all it does is walk through the Lord's Prayer. It addresses God as Father, and then it addresses one of the requests each day. So each day you will look at God as Father, and then hallowed be your name. The next day, God as Father, your kingdom come. The next day, God as Father, your will be done. So you'll look at, some, at God and then one of the requests each day and respond to that. So it'll give you a way to just pray the themes of this prayer as we go through in the month, uh, in the next seven weeks, actually more than a month. It'll be a tool for you. I believe God wants to work something deep in us in a congregation, calling us to prayer, not just as a discipline, not just as an activity, but an encounter with our Father in heaven who wants to shape us individually and as a people together. Let's pray. Father, we, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we recognize your greatness. You are beyond us. You are almighty. You are glorious in your character. We recognize that today. And we thank you that you, the lofty one, have invited us into your presence. The father who is near. The father who cares. The father who provides. Lord, I pray that you would adjust our thinking and that you would speak to our hearts and that you would draw us into communion with you in these days, that we would know you as holy. We would know you as dad. We would know you as beyond our thoughts. We would know you as near. Help us, Lord, we pray. Make us a people of prayer to our Heavenly Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.